Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. LA Stage Alliance invites you to the 29th annual Ovation Awards. The Ovation Awards are Los Angeles's only peer-judged competitive awards for theater, and the LA Times has referred to them as the highest-profile contest for local theater. The Black Tie Ceremony is attended by prominent members of the greater LA theater community, and this year will be at the theater at Ace Hotel on Monday, January 28th at 7.30. For tickets and more information, please go to OvationAwards.com. Welcome to StageCraft, Variety's theater podcast, taking you behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of StageCraft, I talk to Heidi Schreck, the star and writer of What the Constitution Means to Me. Over the last decade or so, Schreck has carved out a career as an actor, a playwright, and a TV writer on shows like Nurse Jackie, Billions, and I Love Dick. Then last fall, What the Constitution Means to Me, the autobiographical show she both wrote and stars in, became a buzzy New York hit, first at New York Theatre Workshop, and then in an extension at the Greenwich House Theatre. When Heidi and I talked, the show was closing at the Greenwich House and was planned to go off to Washington, D.C. to play the Woolly Mammoth Theatre. But since then, a Broadway transfer has been confirmed for this spring, and the play is now set to begin performances at the Helen Hayes Theatre in March. Hi, Heidi. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so What the Constitution Means to Me was one of those shows in New York that like, I turned around and it felt like everybody I knew was talking about it and how much they loved it and how strongly they responded to it. Were you surprised by that uh, response? I was surprised, yes. Although I will say this, I had done a first uh, production of it with Clubbed Thumb right. uh, during Summerworks of 2017. Right. And, and that was a point when I really... I had no idea how it would be received or even what it was or quite what I was doing. And people's response to that production was was also quite intense and overwhelming. So I I suspected it might something like this might happen, but I, I was still shocked. And between that initial uh, few performances at Club Thumb and the the run at the workshop in Greenwich House, yes. then you did it in Berkeley. Yeah, I did. did yeah, rep. I did it at yeah. Berkeley. Rep. And yes. did did you find the same thing there? Uh, I did, although it was a it was a different experience. There, the house was much bigger, mm-hmm. um, and I also it was it's a thrust, a three sided right. thrust. So I there were some things about there were tricky things about it. It took longer to find its stride there, I think, and then once it did, people were incredibly responsive. But it took me a while to get used to that three sided space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and well, so t- tell us a little bit about how the show started and where the idea sure. came from and what. Uh, I've been wanting to make a show about doing this Constitution contest as a teenager for almost 20 years. Um, Why? uh, I don't know, because it was such a formative uh, part of my childhood and my growing up. I mean, I did it all four years of high school. It, uh, you know, I believe it's one of the things that taught me I had a right to speak and also taught me how to think. Um, it was very important to me. Um, I was also such a debate nerd in high school and such a little, you know, I really worshipped the Constitution and so, uh, <laughs> really very optimistic young woman. Um, so I, I just, I always knew it was fertile territory for a play. I just didn't know how or what it should be. And my first idea was incredibly ambitious. I thought I would create this piece 
My favorite part of the contest was the extemporaneous speaking, yep. where you drew an amendment from a hat, and then you would have to give a speech on it. You, you'd have like five minutes to prepare, and then you'd have to come out. And I loved that. I, I liked trying to understand, like find a story in something very quickly. I liked having to think on my feet. Um, so my original idea was, could I give a speech for every amendment, and could I somehow draw a personal connection between my life and every amendment? I guess that would be like a Taylor Max style twenty four hours. I was just gonna say, yeah, that's a like that's a totally twenty four hour cycle. <laughs> Maybe that's your... for the future. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. I became daunted yeah. <laughs> quite quickly by that idea, and so sort of just right. put it on a shelf. And then about ten years ago, did you ever? Yeah, let me, let me, yeah, let me just ask: Did you ever think of it as a more traditional play, as in like maybe something that either would or would not star you, but had you know a a, a group of characters and a like narrative through arc that is more traditional? Yes, I, mean? I did go down that path yeah. for a while, and then I just found every time I tried to do it, um, I found it kind of boring. And then I really wanted to write. A play about the you know the history of the women in my family. Of course, these things coincided because the Constitution has had such a profound effect on them and on me. Um, uh, and when I tried to write a more traditional play about the women in my family, I also it's not just that I found it boring. I actually couldn't. It didn't feel true to me. Like I I wanted to write like a a drama about my grandmother and like her, the or, you know, or even even playing around with structure and thinking, oh, I could. I could write something that jumps around in time and spans four generations. It just never felt true to me. And there was something... At some point, I just realized that I needed to be present in the piece because all these stories are... You know, the way family stories are passed down, they're as much about you, the receiver and perceiver, as they are about the other people. And I just... I felt like that was an important part of the story. And at that point, I realized it would have to be... I would have to write a more non-traditional piece. And on the other end of the spectrum, was it ever in your head a one-person show? Yes. For a while, I just performed the prepared speech, the crucible of the Constitution, oh. at like little performance nights at PS122. Right. Right. It was weirdly a big hit. I don't know, like an, <laughs> an eight-minute speech about the Constitution. And at that point, I thought, oh, it'll just be me, and I'll tell these stories. And But that was... <laughs> so that that's the actual speech you're talking about that you made back in the day? That or, I, I recreated that, that speech. Yeah, so I, remember, I know right. my speech was called The Crucible of the Constitution. Right. Uh, my mom claimed to have lost it. However, right. I just went on um, This American Life and Ira Glass began to like like pester my mom like can you look some more can you find any recordings is there anything you can find from this contest and my mom found the speech. Oh. So Have you read it again? She just sent it to me. I did read it. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you do? I think it's it's better than what I made in my forties. <laughs> I'm thinking of reading it out loud on stage one night. We'll see. <laughs> that's good. That's actually a question for down the line. Yeah, if yeah. this show will change at all between now and DC or anything, and right. if that if that speech is going to be a part of it or that's, that's, maybe it's a program note who knows maybe yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah i don't know i don't right. think the, the speech is is also is better but also boring yeah <laughs> so i probably won't read the whole thing right. um the i do i i'm sure the show will change before dc it, right. it changes in every incarnation I, I would say that it's its structure is set but um as different things happen in the world 
I, it's not a, it, there's never any big wholesale changes, but I, new things get layered in. Also, just my synthesis of some ideas and um, uh, legal decisions gets clearer and then as as it as it becomes clearer to me i try to make it clearer in the piece throughout the run of uh the show in the fall what political moments in particular you know the politics is turbulent and changes every day like, yes. i feel like probably every crowd comes in with an entirely different set of yes you know, with an entirely different news cycle what felt uh sort of What's memorable for you in terms of... Well, the two most memorable things that happened during the political cycle this fall in terms of the play were, of course, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. So I performed the night of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. I also performed the day and night he was confirmed. Um, uh, And the day of the hearings was one of the most intense performances we had. Uh, I had watched the hearings all day which maybe was a bad idea because by the end of the day I was exhausted and I thought, I don't know if I want to go to the theater and do this right now. I'm exhausted by it. Also, I'm afraid I'm going to trigger everybody else or, you know. (laughs) Uh, But when I got there, I felt suddenly, it felt necessary. Like, I felt excited, actually, to, like, dive into this piece about, like, the history of, you know, the thousands of years of history behind the Brett Kavanaugh moment, like right. what did contextualizing it and working through it and um, felt somehow empowering to me. And it seemed to be true for the audience as well. So there was this kind of great cathartic sense of like, let's dive into this and see why, why we're sitting here in this moment. Um, again, years after the Anita Hill hearings right. and uh, the audience was so responsive and so enthusiastic that I felt like, oh, this is so much better than sitting at home scrolling through my Twitter in despair. Right. <laughs> getting to be in a room full of people. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the show has this, it feels very sort of loose and like it yes. could, you, like anything could happen at any moment. And for there are moments where you're like, well, wait, is this scripted? Is it not scripted? Right. How... How scripted is it? How how much of that it's is theater? Very scripted. Yeah. Um, and that was the thing I learned too. I actually learned in Berkeley because it, I, I clubbed them. It was more extemporaneous. I was shuffling mm. stories in and out. I was trying new things every night. Um, sometimes I would read off. I would get new information and just read it. Um, and then by the time I got to Berkeley, the structure was set, and I I re- I learned that I had to then approach it as an actor. Right. I learned that the piece didn't work unless it seemed like it was being born in the moment. And so right. that became a different acting challenge for me. Now, I still I still work every night to make sure it feels like, oh, I'm just discovering these ideas right now. Uh, but I also, the part that's, the only part that's really improvised now is my relationship to the audience. Right. Depending on how people react, I will talk to them. I, the other day, I threw a cough drop to someone. Oh, I think I might have been at that <laughs> oh, really? show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. So, yeah. again, because I feel like it's important that it feel like we're all in the same room together. We're all having this conversation together. I hope we're all thinking together. That I, I do as much as I can to make it to sort of improvise with the audience. Right. Yeah. And so you're on stage uh, with at least one other person for most of the time. Yes. And uh, do you, that character, that is an actor who <laughs> has a character and then sort of stops being that character and yes. has its own. How integral is this other actor to, like, I know you've done it with another actor before, but uh, yeah. uh, did that 
because this actor, for listeners who haven't seen it yet, you know, they he sort of steps out and speaks as himself. Yes. Um, I'm guessing to give you a moment to catch your breath and uh, take a break. Um, but so, how did that? How did that fit in, and how can you can you imagine that happening with another actor? Uh, I can imagine it happening with a, another actor. I realized when so Danny Wallahan yep. was the first um, person to inhabit that role, and now he's on Broadway in To Kill a Mockingbird. So I knew we had to cast someone else, and I realized that I didn't. Mike and Danny are very different uh, actors. Um, I realized the most important thing to me was to have someone I deeply trusted on stage with me and both emotionally and aesthetically um, mm-hmm. that I didn't need a certain type of m- man um, that I just needed a- an actor I deeply trusted who then was willing to share their own relationship to the issues that come up in the play. And so the monologue changes the based monologue on the actor? Yes. Okay. So right. we spent several weeks Mike telling stories and I would take them home and try to piece them together and we sort of shaped that story together. And why was that other voice uh, important for you to have in there? I mean there are two reasons. Um, one, I on a very fundamental level when once I started talking about the scarier uh, things in the play, when I started talking about my own abortion and when I started talking about the history of domestic violence in my family, I I truly did not want to be alone on stage. Mm. Um, I felt like I needed someone up there with me, like an ally support system. Um, And then I thought, well, I would also be fantastic to have like someone representing the American Legion and and the American Legion judge and also the man who traveled with me when I was a teenager helping me. Um, And that's when I first had the idea to bring in Danny. I also knew that Danny like Mike, has spent many years thinking through his relationship to gender, and uh, they're both, you know, uh, what I like to call conscious feminists. Like, they've actually thought through all the issues and and read extensively and done a lot of work, and so I wanted that person on stage with me. And then I think once I decided that, I also realized it it just felt important that um, I sort of model and enact the idea that like um, women identified people should not be the only ones who have to carry this the burden of these stories right yeah right yeah I'll be back with more from Heidi Schreck right after this LA Stage Alliance invites you to the 29th annual Ovation Awards the Ovation Awards are Los Angeles's only peer judged competitive awards for theater and the LA Times has referred to them as the highest profile contest for local theater. The black tie ceremony is attended by prominent members of the greater LA theater community, and this year will be at the theater at Ace Hotel on Monday, January 28th at 7.30. For tickets and more information, please go to ovationawards.com. And now, let's continue our conversation with Heidi Schreck. Do you have another co-star um, I as do. well, who is, uh, I'm very excited to ask questions about because there are many, oh that, I mean, so I saw, um, her, I believe her name is Rosdelli. She yes. Was, you, there are uh, two different, is this right? There are two different, how old are they? They're, they're um, so Rosdelli is 14 and Thursday yeah. Williams is 17. And they are both, uh, New York city public schools, public yep. school, yeah, public yeah. school. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you and your co-star uh, night to night have a debate. Yes. Uh, parliamentary debate, right? If yep. I'm not mistaken. Okay. And so how much of that, I mean, 
as I'm sitting there watching it, it seems like you are both writing your arguments right then. Really? And you are I'm totally, so happy it seems like and that. And I could not tell. <laughs> because really, you like flip a coin and maybe, I was like, maybe they're just all prepared and you have one side, you have both sides prepared right. and you just do it. Like, how, how much of that is scripted? And is it... I mean, I always hate to break the illusion, yeah. but I will say this. Like the show, the debate was developed extemporaneously. So we really debated. Um, I've been working with Rosdelli. Rosdelli and I have worked together since she was 12. Wow. She actually taught me the parliamentary style of debate because that, that yeah, didn't exist that. when you I was in high that. school. Yeah, so she taught me the style, and then we did what you do in debate class, which is go away, work on our arguments, accumulate our evidence. We had kind of think tanks, like we involved all the stage managers and Oliver, and then we would get up and do practice debates until we sort of solidified our arguments. Right. We would switch sides. Do you, do yeah. you debate the same side every night? Um, now we do. Okay. We didn't in the past, and I'm thinking about... Um, I'm thinking about making the coin toss real again. Mm. It's just, it's the show is such a balance between, um, you know, what, what can feel spontaneous and alive and what is open to chance. For example, the questions at the end are not planned. Um, And, and questions with the audience. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. The audience submits questions to us and we ask each other and that's, we don't know what those are going to be ahead of time. Um, uh, but it's just a careful balance between like structure and uh, openness, much right. like the Constitution. <laughs> uh, so that's one of the things when I when we started debating the opposite sides, and the younger person voted, you know, argued to abolish the Constitution. It something about the arc of the play felt wrong to me. Mm. Also, they don't believe that. They are either of them. Either of them. Yeah. They're both like I was as a teenager. They have a great reverence for the document, and so it also felt false. I'm much more critical of the document, and right. so it started to make sense for me to argue the side that criticizes it. And so the de- uh, the bit debate, as listeners have gleaned by yeah, now, yeah. is that it's about how to whether or not we should abolish the constitution. Yes, and, and start uh, over, and there, and start <laughs> over, and there's a vote. How much has does the vote? How wildly does yeah. the vote swing? I've won, like, we, we keep a tally on our uh, bulletin board. I think I've won 12 times, and they've won, like, 72 times. <laughs> Do you think it's just because they're kids? <laughs> I, I mean, partially. They're also really good debaters, but I they, also they think, are quite good. That's I really think true. my argument is harder to yeah. uh, stomach. Yeah. And I will say, in full disclosure, I don't, I mean... In some, which one of the young debaters says, Rosdelli loves this argument, saying that I have this utopian idea that we can somehow create this perfect document. Yep. And I think she's right. I don't, yeah, I think in a in a utopia, we should create a brand new document that actively protects all of us and is much clearer than the one we have now. But I have no idea how we would do that, right. uh, given the the realities of the world. Right, right. And so... Just to, because I feel like the the uh, feel of the piece is so, and the spontaneity, they assumed spontaneity of the piece is yes. so like unusual. Was that was the uh, is the only other option then to sort of make it into a speech? Like, did you not want it to feel like a de- like I am up here narrating to you or? Um, yeah, I definitely reciting did not, to you. I Do you know what I mean? Like, was it... that the danger, or what was the thing um, that you were really that you're trying to really get at? And I think the thing I was trying to get at. Um, I the the truth is I didn't know where I was headed when I started it, so I didn't have a speech to give. Like I didn't have um, 
uh, an argument I was trying to make or a thing I wanted to convey to people the way you do with a speech, right? right? I didn't, there was no, I didn't know where I was headed, which is, I think, what makes it art and what makes it theater. All I knew was, like, I was going to take the prompt of the contest seriously and follow follow this path that said, well, how was how your life personally affected by this document? And once I started doing that when I was making it, I just, I went through a, an intense emotional experience, right. both, like, researching the history of this clause of the 14th Amendment and then also because I was trying to connect it to the personal life, researching the women in my family, I, I went through an enormous emotional turmoil and confusion and grief. And um, Was there ever any wariness? Yeah. I wondered this. Was there ever any wariness on your part in terms of how oh, much yeah. to... Yeah, I feel like there must have been. It, yes. goes, it goes really personal for people who haven't seen it yet. Yes. No, that was a series of steps. To, the, the first time I did a like a full reading of it was in 2015 when... Obama was still president, and I did talk about my abortion then, but I did not delve into the history of domestic violence in my family. That part was the scariest yeah, to talk about. Um, so that was a series of steps. And then when I first did the, I, I've talked about this lots of places, but the very first Club Thumb performance, public performance, when I got to that part, I was just like, I don't want to do this. And I, I, I had an enormous out of stage fright I stood up there not knowing what to say I kept looking at Danny he he was like looked very supportive but he was like I didn't feel like it was my place to speak for you until finally I just walked off stage <laughs> and then everybody rushed backstage and we're like you did, can do it go back out did you go out. back on stage okay I went back on stage yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay and you finished I it. was very I think yeah, yeah it was horrible for me but uh, it apparently was thrilling for the people who were there that's, that's why they go see live theater right? for them. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it was fun for them because right. it was not fun for me <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um, do you consider yourself a writer first or an actor first well what's fascinating about this play is that it's I think it's the first time I decided I didn't have to choose mm. I've always wondered whenever I'm writing I'm like oh acting is better I, I'm a real actor and writing sucks and I wish I weren't doing it and vice versa and um, uh, in making this play I just I think I thought for the first time I, I am both of these things like fully and completely so why don't I um, marry them like why don't I put, put like why don't I put the two halves of myself together and right. see what happens could you imagine starring in something that wasn't you know, as overtly autobiograph autobiographical as this? Like uh, one of my written. own plays? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, maybe. Mm. I mean, the hard part is is that um, I'm... Con and I think this is what makes it feel live as well, is that I'm constantly rewriting in my head as I'm performing, and that's fine in this play. I have the luxury to, of doing that. I can change the way I phrase something on any given night. I have complete freedom. If I really wanted to add a different story, I don't, but... Um, I'm afraid if I were in a more fictional play that I wrote that I would drive the other actors crazy because <laughs> I would just rewrite on my feet every night. Right. Who are your biggest influences as a writer? I have uh, so many. Uh, my first, my the biggest influence is Marie Irene Fornes, um, okay. who has been my favorite playwright since I was a teenager and is the writer who made me want to become a playwright. Hmm. All of my first plays were terrible rip-offs of her plays. Um, and then 
just throughout my life, I I would say this piece definitely influenced by Lisa Crone. Sure. Uh, yeah. When I was in college, I was also um, my, one of my heroes was Holly Hughes, the performance artist. Um, I, I feel like this piece is definitely influenced by those sort of groundbreaking uh, queer performance artists that I was so enthralled with in the 90s. And, and, and I really do believe their work is groundbreaking and hasn't been given the credit I mean, it's been given some credit, but I think it deserves much more. Um, and then I'm also just a... Uh, I love... I, I read a lot of fiction, and I also read a lot of memoir. I love Maggie Nelson and the Argonauts. I think this piece is also influenced by her writing. I sometimes, you know, some, I don't know if she likes this term, but some people call her writing auto-theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I'm like, I kind of like that. This is like like memoir, auto-theory. Theory, auto feminist theory, auto legal something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there another auto theoretical work in your future? Like, is this a thing? Is <laughs> this a form you want to? Uh, I mean, want to explore? I mean, I do. I loved doing this. I, I'm possibly. I've been talking to people about possibly writing. Uh, I had to cut so much material out of this. There are like, there's like a hundred pages of lost material because it's, you know, theater is durational. I guess I could go with the Taylor Mac thing and do 24 hours. But I have so much material that I would like to write a book, um, you know, with with that material. So we'll see. Yeah. And you also write for TV. What do you find that? uh, How do you feel like that interplays with your stage writing? Um, It's uh, it's interesting because I was working in TV for five straight years before I return to the stage. The last time I was on stage was 2013 in a Comedy of Errors, Shakespeare right. in the Park. In Shakespeare in the Park. Shakespeare right. in the Park, yeah. So it's been a long time since I've been working in theater, and I think um, one thing that happened is that I decided while working on this piece that I wanted to make something that could only happen in theater. Like that, I think that's part of where the idea of like the liveness came and and a spontaneous or extemporaneous debate and involving the audience at the end. Um, I, I think being, I love television, but being sort of stuck in that form made me desperately want to go back to theater and try to make something that could really only happen in a theater. Has doing what the Constitution means to me changed? Do you feel differently about the Constitution now than you did when you first started uh, writing and performing this? Yes. So can you tell us more? Sure. I I'm I'm all I'm hesitant to say this because, you know, there's there's a whole there is a faction of the very conservative faction of the Republican Party that wants to hold a new constitutional convention and you know, and that terrifies me. I will say that researching this past decade and learning about other countries' constitutions, um, which are all newer than ours. Ours is the oldest living constitution. And learning what positive rights were. So positive rights are active rights that right that protect us. Um, you know, you can say like the right to health care, the right to an education. Uh, the fact that every new constitution has gender explicitly protected um, right from the very beginning has made me question this document in a new way. Um, I I feel much more disillusioned by it than I did when I started. When I started, I believed I believed our country 
had a, a history of great um, violence and oppression and white supremacy and racism. But I believe the document was a kind of neutral document and a genius doc- document that could help us um, rectify all of those things. And now, lately, maybe because I debated every night, I wonder if the document is holding us back. And so... What's next for you? This show is going to go to Willie Mammoth in D.C., which is a you will be doing a political show in a political political yes. town. That's going to be exciting. <laughs> I know. It's uh, going to be really interesting. <laughs> uh, and what else is on your plate? Is there a future life for this show, first of all? I mean... Do you want there to be? I mean... I do want there to be. There's been a lot of... There are a lot of things in the mix that I can't quite talk about yet, but like one of those things does include taking it around the country, which I would love to do. Um, I'm... I'm also exhausted though, so I don't. It's just like how how much my body can handle. We have had discussions with lots of theaters about um, there are theaters who are interested in if I can't come and having another actor do it. Right. And I'm I'm interested in that, but it also scares me. Okay. That, I, I'm trying to understand if, if that makes any sense. Um, I mean, certainly. I know there are you know like Lisa Crone's two point five minute ride is now performed by other people. Um, uh, there are a lot of you know, autobiographical works that then get performed by other actors. But right now it feels so close to me that it's hard for me to imagine. Yeah. And are you working on any other plays or? I am. I have a commission with the Atlantic theater. So I've been working on that play for quite a long time. And then I'm developing a couple of uh, television shows right now. So that's kind of, I'm really late on all those deadlines. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to have a little time to work on them, right? <laughs> a little, a little bit, bit, before yeah. you head off to D.C.? Well, <laughs> a little, right. yeah. Well, we will look forward to seeing whatever it is Thank when it comes you. out. Yeah. Thank Thanks you. a lot, Heidi. Nice to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Thank you. That was Heidi Schreck, the star and creator of What the Constitution Means to Me, the off-Broadway hit that's moving to Broadway later this spring. If you like what you've heard on this and other episodes of StageCraft, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe wherever finer podcasts are dispensed. On the next episode of StageCraft, I talk to Ethan Hawke, the Oscar and Tony-nominated actor now on Broadway in True West. Until then, see you at the theater. LA Stage Alliance invites you to the 29th annual Ovation Awards. The Ovation Awards are Los Angeles's only peer-judged competitive awards for theater, and the LA Times has referred to them as the highest profile contest for local theater. The Black Tie Ceremony is attended by prominent members of the greater LA theater community, and this year will be at the theater at Ace Hotel on Monday, January 28th at 7.30. For tickets and more information, please go to ovationawards.com. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.